Action. Welcome to Media and Monuments, presented by Women in Film and Video in Washington, D.C. Media and Monuments features conversations with industry professionals speaking on a range of topics of interest to screen-based media makers. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Media and Monuments podcast. This episode is a pretty fun one for me, Tara. Um, We'll get to why. Uh, Basically, ever wonder what the holiday classic It's a Wonderful Life would look like with a masked serial killer on the loose in Bedford Falls with only one plucky young final girl in the James Stewart role as the only one who can put an end to all of the bloodshed? That's the premise of the new horror comedy with equal parts heart and bloody mayhem. It's a wonderful knife. Today, we are joined by the film's director, Tyler McIntyre. Did I say it right? Tyler McIntyre. Yeah, that's correct. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, One of the reasons why it's pretty special, last season, there's three co-hosts and Sandra is one of the co-hosts and she does not like horror films and I don't like holiday films we had learned we did a special on horror films and holiday films and we both complained on each other's episode I'm like I can't stand holiday movies if I see one more stupid hot chocolate with uh, and, and she's like I don't like being scared so when we found out about this movie they're like, Tara, you're doing it. I'm like, glad to. So um, I wanted to say, like, th- this has been a really fun twist on things. How did you guys decide on that? And were there any problems with, like, copyright issues or anything like that? Uh, no, not really. I mean, it's it's just inspired by, you know, the, the sort of high concept of um, it's a wonderful life. And obviously, like the title of uh, the title is a, is a bit of a pun, mm-hmm. um, but it's not like a beat for beat remake at all. Uh, you know, and, uh, and I think that's fairly apparent if you kind of watch the watch the movie is like um, the structure is completely different. The characters are completely different. Like it, all it is doing is just kind of riffing on that. And uh, to be fair, like it's a wonderful life, uh, you know, is a riff on a Christmas Carol, you know? So, so it, uh, uh, like, uh, and we tried to essentially be as beholden as it's a wonderful life is to the Christmas Carol as we are to, um, that film. And, uh, you know, but, uh, really we just wanted to make kind of a roller coaster slasher with a lot of holiday flavor. Well, some of the death scenes were kind of, uh, fun. Um, the, the producer, Brandon and I watched it. Thank you so much for an early release. And, he was like, I could never look at a candy cane decoration the same way again. Um, how did you guys approach practical effects with large amounts of either blood and gore, especially when it's snowy too? So white. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've definitely, uh, you know, worked with a lot of practical effects before and some digital effects. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, made a couple of uh, horror films so far and, and, uh, and, you know, it's always a very fun part of the process, kind of figuring out exactly how you're going to pull off those gags. Mostly it's, it's about trying to get the right confluence of logistics and, and price points and like, you know, the locations and things like that, and making sure that you have these kind of creative kills because uh, a lot of the horror fans kind of look for that sort of thing. And sometimes you're, you're not able to, you know, you have to rethink things kind of, you know, later in the process or kind of last minute sometimes. 
some of them like the, the candy cane death you mentioned uh like was a very early one that we knew we could sort of place anywhere and that's that was, a, was such a flexible kind of fun idea and very holiday focused and you know you haven't really seen it before so it was kind of like a good thing whereas some of them are are more like nods to other types of kills that we've seen and that we want to do our version of them with a holiday spin and things like that so um you know and that's a fun part of the process and some of that's on the page with michael and some of that's uh you know something we figure out between myself and the dp and the production designer like as we're getting closer to uh, production and one thing that's like pretty i feel like there's a lot of pressure in doing a horror film with a uh how the killer looks like right so we have there's the iconic jumpsuit for Michael Myers or the green and red sweater for Freddy Krueger, so forth, so forth. How did you guys approach the uh, killer's look for your film? Because it is quite unique. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's been um, uh, something that we were, uh, you know, toying around with in the script. He's uh, referred to as kind of all white and an angel costume. And, and so, you know, we knew that that involved a cloak, but we weren't exactly, um, you know, sure. And they also described kind of a, the ornate kind of knife um, or dagger that he has. And so we knew we had kind of like a jumping off point about it. Um, and just based on the action and like who ended up kind of having to sort of justify being in the suit, we knew he was going to be kind of more of a lean and fast kind of killer, a little bit more like a like a ghost face versus like a like a bigger killer, like a like a Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers kind of thing, like you know the big lumbering right. kind. And so, um, so we knew we wanted a bit of a unique silhouette, but we um, it became pretty apparent that we didn't want wings; they were kind of impractical. They were a bit like a like a cape or something. It made it look too like you know Spirit Halloween costume fairy kind of thing, where where it was just weird, you know, running through, you know, it, it would have been weird. And so we knew that we wanted to have um, sort of sharper shoulder blades to kind of give that impression. But then we looked at a lot of um, like tree toppers, like angel tree toppers. Um, um, and they all, a lot of those ones, especially the vintage ones, have kind of these sort of blank kind of porcelain expressions. And so that was kind of a jumping off point for us. And we um, started, we wanted essentially his face to have this like blank white, um, you know, uh, kind of be featureless with no eyes and um, mm -hmm. have all the texture of like a frosted light bulb. So you could see like the yeah. crisp lights reflected in it and it would be kind of creepy. But um, it also had these, you know, set of challenges. Like we'd have to hide him in snow and against white surfaces, you know, instead of like in shadow, which a lot of, you know, darker, our killers are kind of darker costumes. And um, yeah, which was fun to kind of figure out. Yeah, you guys did a really good job. I was when I was watching it in the previews, I was like, "Oh, that's a nice, pretty look for a killer." And then when I watched, I'm like, "Yeah, I I was thinking in my head, I'm like, if I had to be killed by someone, this was like a nice thing to look out right before." And then I'm watching, I'm like, "No, never mind. It's too hard." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he he ended up kind of having a bit of a graceful kind of quality to him that I think yeah. uh, Cody, who's our um, stunt person who wore the the costume most of the time. Um, what, you know, had to, uh, he also had to sort of learn to operate, um, you know, somewhat, uh, because the mask was extremely hard to see out of. Um, and so we had these different stages of it that were more or less easy to see out of, but generally speaking, you, it's really hard to make a, a, like a shiny white surface that you can see through, um, you know, that's like a one-way glass and it doesn't really work very well. And, um, and so, uh, depending on the lighting conditions, like he couldn't see much at all. Also, he often learned things kind of blind. And then, and then would sort of rehearse them. And it gave it this very kind of um, sort of graceful quality in certain moments that is kind of interesting. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. A nice touch. Because um, I think what you guys did a pretty good job is for such a beloved film, It's a Wonderful Life, not to make it 
too gory or too something more respectful like even the kill the way it's dressed or the set design and it's like aurora borealis and all that stuff was kind of nice and i'm be like see it's not insulting or anything like that because was that a lot of pressure you're like oh we're gonna piss off a lot of people yeah i mean it was definitely a beloved kind of classic and we're definitely kind of um doing a bit of a riff on it it's sort of um fundamental enough to the lexicon where where people are not in that that weird kind of interstitial space where they're 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 so they don't want to see anything like like the thing they love like i think it's been sort of ingrained in culture long enough i mean the movie's almost 80 years old you know so it, it's um uh you know it's pretty far back in 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 in, in the public consciousness that it, you know um but it is you know something that people are very aware of and uh, we aren't the first people to kind of riff on on that sort of you know magical like wish where you see your life differently like you know people are very aware of that trope and so we just wanted to make um sure that we were having the right type of fun with it in, in like a horror rapper but for me like the challenge was more trying to bring that warm fuzzy feeling and that kind of uplifting sort of ending to something that is i mean no spoilers but uh, uh to, to a slasher movie um which often don't have that so you know it's a relatively well-meaning movie you know in 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 when you compare it to other things in the subgenre and i think that's um why people kind of have been sort of responding well to it is because it, it has this sort of warmth to it yeah that's definitely true um one of my questions is that there were quite a few uh, about five or so main characters that are queer um can you talk about why you guys decided to use uh like have so many um lgbtq plus characters in this film I just not, you know, really out of the norm for uh, Michael or, or, or myself. I mean, Michael's a queer man and, uh, and, you know, his previous film, they wrote, uh, Freaky definitely had some, uh, mm -hmm. uh characters who were kind of at the forefront. Um, you know, uh, a previous movie I made, uh, Tragedy Girls had, is, is, had a lot of quite of queer elements and, and, uh, and definitely was something that, that was relatively intentionally queer coded. Um, you know, and so, we thought like you know now that we kind of had those two movies like do we you know well within the within their genres um this time around people were just a lot more like supportive of it uh, i mean even going back a couple of years like it was a lot harder to get a central character to have any sort of queer elements for fear of a lot of you know just general homophobia in the public and and um and also like internationally it's it, it's very, it's tough to sell films but like times are changing and obviously for the better and, and so um so like there was definitely that those sorts of elements really wanted to do well-liked kind of queer athletes mm -hmm. um and and like not really hang a lantern on it you know just kind of like not be about you know him realizing his just just like it was just something about he was just a person living his life and um and that was kind of you know a discussion for us early on and, and so he was in the script pretty early and gail uh like had uh you know had a sort of like cool and quality and, and then that was something that, that happened in development even before i was on um uh it was a discussion between uh, adam hendricks our producer and 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 michael that they were like well let's just make the you know the man and uh, you know gay as well and 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 so it, it sort of uh um you know like those two were kind of in the strip when when i got on and then but then through production like we uh like bernie and uh winnie's relationship in the movie and this is a bit of a spoilery thing like you know like um had kind of these sort of um shades of being of of a kind of implied queerness to it but it was more just a like an intimate sort of friendship and then through casting um uh jane widup and, and jess mcleod they had like a chemistry to it and and and, and the idea really came from like us all kind of i, I mean uh, like they definitely like approached us being like hey can we play this a bit more like a romance and then and then it really just grew from there and, and it was more responding to like the type of chemistry we were seeing and then before you know it like you know we, we we had a lot of um we had a lot more queer characters than than is the norm but again that's you know 
something that that our studio was supportive of and then and it's great that we're in that time you know um and so we we wanted to kind of seize the opportunity as it presented itself that it's a great point because while watching it all these characters no one's playing like you tend to see like a one queer character who's sort of like in the backdrop or a side character something it was very interesting it didn't play with the tropes and it's like listen these are all these characters and they help with either the murder the killer or the hero and it does it some happen to be gay some happen not to be gay that's the end of it so it didn't play with those kind of I just expected them to be straight because in the history it has been that way. Or, oh, it's interesting that they made it. You guys just made it very like, that's how it is. Um, and it's nice that you shared the process of like, okay, we decided on a couple of characters. It sounds like from the beginning, like the brother being gay, but he's not, he's the high school not jock, but like he's the popular guy. Yeah, I mean, he, and that's he, usually he, not you know. what you see in films that the gay guy is the popular guy. <laughs> um, and then you saw chemistry between these uh, the actors and stuff and started kind of changing it and it just felt like a natural process I don't think we were like too preoccupied by by trying to make the movie more queer than it kind of felt like it was you know but but I mean it just really I mean honestly like we just had a lot of queer and like non-binary people like working on the movie and the crew and stuff like that and it just it, I don't know, it all kind of fell into place in a way that was natural for the type of story we we're talking about. I was just thinking like it felt natural. So I was just curious on how much was it really a conscious effort. And it sounds like it's a little bit that a little bit of both. Uh, but it showed the naturalness of it, that that's just how the characters are. Yeah, yeah, t totally. I mean, I, I always try to kind of listen to sort of what's happening, like as you're kind of making it, because like, it doesn't make sense to sort of fight the you know like the natural like things yeah. that are that are happening on 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 set like you don't want to rebel against the chemistry it's hard to fit you know the the square pegs into the round holes you know like at, at, like in, in any sort of performance and so you really want to seize those opportunities because those are that's where the good stuff is. Well, one of the other things that I noticed uh, there's sort of a trend now of these fun teen centric horror movies in the last few years. Um, we have Talk to Me, Happy Death Day. Bodies, bodies, bodies. Now this one, and it's reminiscent of some of the '90s teen slasher movie craze. Do you look to continue working in this genre, um, and how do you approach creating these kinds of films for a Gen Z and younger millennial audience? This is my my kind of my third film, um, uh, and they've all been sort of younger skewing, you know, horror films. And I, I always try and approach it, you know, uh, depending on on the type of characters that are. I wasn't one of the writers on this, so it's a bit of a different thing because I I am able to sort of hire uh, performers to collaborate with and, and sort of figure out how to make it authentic. Um, whereas when I'm writing things, I always try and um, try and figure out like, well, you know, as a guy in his 30s, like it's a little bit harder to be to put myself in the mindset of, of like often like protagonists who are you know going through a different experience, and so I, I just want to um, you know make sure that I sort of. Uh, have ways of sort of checking in mm -hmm. with with you know the authenticity of it and often i do like table reads with kind of younger performers and get sort of feedback or talk to younger writers who are a bit closer to that um sort of experience and and uh you know make sure that that um we're not sort of overstepping but a lot of things that i do are quite stylized and, and they're often grounded in some pretty heavy satire it's more flexible like it's not like anyone's like Oh man, you know, it's a wonderful, you know, knife was not the most authentic we were, you know, but I do want them to see some truth in it. And you just have to be honest about that. Uh, last question, because it actually ties in 
what we just talked about. Congratulations on your recent box office success with your other film, uh, Five Nights at Freddy's. Yeah. 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 Five Nights at uh, Freddy's. Yeah. Yes. And so it's my understanding you share a screen story credit. So myself and my writing partner, Chris uh, Lee Hill, uh, we wrote a number of drafts of, of Five Nights at Freddy's over, over the years and uh, were brought in and out a couple of times to sort of work with Scott Coffin, who was the mm-hmm. um, creator of the game, to um, a team at Blumhouse to try and figure out how to sort of figure out that narrative. Because, you know, it's there's over a dozen games and there's, you know, hundreds of characters and like a, a lot of different you know, ways to sort of skin that cat as it's as it's a uh, video game adaptation. And so we were um, able to b- bring a bit of a frame and uh, uh, to it and kind of figure out the type of story that that uh, was, you know, uh, maybe need to be told. And, and, you know, like the pandemic, the timeline got a little a little strange. And so we weren't able to uh, like uh, I was attached to uh, directed at a certain point and, and then eventually it ended up um, Emma, Tommy and her, her um, uh, team ended up being able to get across the finish line. I think did a great job. You know, I mean, people are really responding to it, and it's you know, it's been it's been awesome to to see it sort of uh, find its audience. It's a wonderful knife arrives in theaters starting November 10th, just in time to kick off the holiday season. Uh, thank you guys so much, and happy holidays. <laughs> happy holidays, you. Thank you for listening to Media and Monuments, a service of women in film and video. Please remember to review, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. For more information about WIF, please visit our website at www.wifasinfrankvasinvictor.org. Media and Monuments is produced by Sandra Abrams, Candace Block, Brandon Ferry, and Tara Jabari, and edited by Emma Klein with audio production and mix by Steve Lack Audio. For more information about our podcast, visit mediaandmonuments.com.